1: Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet.
0: Samesh Dash joins us today from San Francisco. Samesh is general partner at IVP, where he focuses on later stage investments in internet software, wireless, and technology-enabled service companies. Some of his investments include Amplitude, Business Insider, and Dropbox. Samesh was recognized by the New York Times and CB Insights in 2019 as one of the top 100 venture capitalists and by GrowthCap as one of the top 40 under 40 growth investors in 2019. Samesh, it's great to chat again and even better to have you on the show.
1: Great to be on the show, Nick. Um, it's is such a unique period of time and I, in global history and um, I just hope everybody that um, works with you. Everyone in your family is doing okay, health wise, and um, you know, my heart goes out to anyone who may be affected by COVID nineteen from a health perspective.
0: I appreciate that so much, and I, I wish it were under better circumstances. I know that you know you've you've seen the effects yourself, and um, really appreciate you making time for for us in the audience. But um, just to, just to give us a yeah. quick intro, can you kind of walk through your background <laughs> and what led you to uh, venture and IVP?
1: Sure. No, I'm happy to do that. It's a real pleasure to be with you. If um, you hear a couple screaming kids in the background, uh, please forgive me. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think for me, you know, I've, I was very lucky. Uh, I hit the genetic lottery in that um, my parents are Indian immigrants, but um, emigrated first for graduate school to Toronto uh, in Canada. My dad went to Waterloo and then eventually ended up in Silicon Valley where they worked in the tech sector. And due to that, Um, I got to be born in sort of the epicenter of, you know, the digital gold rush and the digital revolution and um, didn't know much about it when I was growing up. Like any other kid, I was just, you know, playing sports and, um, you know, hanging out with buddies. And uh, you can sort of tell the difference of suburban Silicon Valley in the 80s and 90s versus any other part of America, really. But all around me, you know, I had a tight-knit group of friends and family friends who worked in different sectors. I started hearing more and more about startups and innovation and um, had the privilege of going to UC Berkeley um, uh, for my undergrad, where I studied a kind of combination of science and um, business administration. Um, but then really got inspired um, about this industry, about venture capital, because I started reading books. I was in school in the late '90s, just when things—the first internet boom—was happening, and I had a chance to see some of the people that were part of that, from Jerry Yang and uh, Pierre Omidyar speak on campus. It was really inspirational to think about how they, at such a young age, were building such amazing companies. Um, you know the. The first time I really was aware of what venture capital was, because my parents were technical and really, you know, didn't know much about that world, the finance world was. I got to listen to a talk by John Doerr um, in the late '90s, and he talked about um, actually a deal that he had just done, which was actually Google, uh, and was walking through kind of the Series A process and how they did it. And I think what stuck to me was just um, how much venture capital was about working alongside founders and entrepreneurs versus. My impression of finance was always that you know, sort of, you were involved in a transaction, or you were you had an adversarial relationship if you were a lender to them. Um, I didn't. I loved the idea that you could actually be a part of a team and multiple teams. Um, and you know, the kind of quote that stuck with me was sort of um, having um, you know small interactions, you know, uh, with teams that lead to big impact. And so, for me, the my family in India was very involved in, in public policy and social work and journalism and. It was always um, not about, you know, amassing personal wealth. It was really about impact and helping people. And I just felt that any industry that um, creates jobs and creates innovation, you know, has impact. And I think the last thing was just um, inspiration. It's still the reason that gets me so excited about work. Um, even as you know, we're sitting on Zoom calls all day. It's just founders are so resilient, and um, especially in the last few weeks when I've seen. In spite of such um, trying circumstances for many of them, professionally and personally, how committed they are to company formation and company scaling—I just think that um, really is the, the Benjamin Button, you know, fountain of youth for yeah. all of us. And mm-hmm. so that was um, that was really what led me to venture. Um, I also had a chance. I did a couple of different things, including working at Sony in an operational role, and then working at Credit Suisse. I worked. Um, uh, I'm at the Credit Suisse First Boston Tech Group, and it was run by a guy named Frank Quattrone, who you may know or yeah. uh, be aware of, who now runs Catalyst. And um, in that role, I was an investment banking analyst. I got a chance to see, uh, get an education about just how Silicon Valley works. Um, I got a chance to work on uh, with companies like Salesforce and Yahoo and Google in the early stages, and. Actually, it's what led me to IVP. I had a few clients like Concur, the travel and expense software company, and Polycom, the speakerphone company, and Netflix that were all IVP investments. They had just raised um, their second completely dedicated growth fund, which was their 11th fund in history. It was 2004. And I came on as an associate and really had a view of doing this for two to three years and then um, kind of joining a startup or going to business school. And then um, I did end up getting my MBA at Stanford, but I missed the firm a lot. And it was such a. Uh, I missed the people a lot, um, and so I came right back, and I've had a decade plus run since then, and um, just been really, really lucky to work with such an amazing group of um, LPs that are in our fund, founders, and of course my partners and the whole team at IVP.
0: Interesting. So, were you were you at the firm and active when the two thousand eight crisis hit, or were you at Stanford?
1: I, I was. It was both. So I actually had a chance to. In the beginning of the crisis, that was sort of um, when I was still at IVP and I was uh, I was actually working on deals that were um, not too dissimilar from where we are right now, being readjusted in the wake of a subprime crisis that was popping up out of that nobody had predicted. I also had a chance to stay involved in the firm in a variety of ways while I was in business school and then come right back um, in 2010. And so I did have a chance to sort of see the impact of it. The fund that was raised, IVP-12... In 2007, really invested through that crisis. And interestingly, Nick, it's um, in the last 20 years, it's um, our best performing realized funds. Uh, and it's just been remarkable uh, the number of analogies and lessons. And it's really nice to be around with the same team that was part of that group. They're actually, even though venture capital seems like a big industry, there really aren't a lot of people in growth that were able to institutionally invest through the last cycle given um, this bull market run lasted longer than I think what people expected yep. so we you know there's a lot of things that we're talking about over zoom right now with our team and um, you know one of the lessons that really came out is uh, you know cycles take a while I think people are <laughs> people forget we've had almost an 11 year run right? Yeah. And we're in sort of week four, week five of COVID, and the way people, you know, some people are acting as if, oh, we're we're going to recover immediately, and you know, recoveries take a while. It takes a while to digest it. We haven't seen the first set of public earnings calls yet. Uh, we haven't seen guidance given for Q3. We haven't seen 2021 guidance given. We haven't seen the bellwethers report. So that'll all come in the next few months, and the economy and the markets will adjust accordingly. Um, so one of the big lessons we had from last time is. Um, these things take a while to reset. And typically, the public markets reset faster than the private markets. We've already seen that in the last four weeks. Um, But the private markets will readjust and they will um, recalibrate. So I think you'd always stay in market. You always meet companies. You always perform diligence. Um, But in terms of capital deployment and pacing, I think a trap would be to say, oh, we've seen the bottom... It's time to sort of double down as much as we can. Assets have hit their floor. Um, I, we don't fundamentally believe that. And so we think it's important to actually have capital ready to go as prices continue to decline. Um, and it's also, in some ways, a blessing because you get to know companies and see how they behave to an existential pandemic, which yeah. is a scenario that people you know had literally in Q4 of last year, no one was asking entrepreneurs about. So this is a great litmus test. It's also a really important litmus test for entrepreneurs to ask uh, VCs about because I do think a lot of founders um, didn't do as much work or spend as much time or references on VCs as they probably should have. With this um, new normal we have, I think people have more time to get to know each other, hopefully in person soon. Right now, it's all virtually. Uh, But definitely, um, I think actually from a diligence perspective, we're looking at three new deals right now this week. And it's amazing with the tools we have between Zoom and Slack and Dropbox and other things, how much diligence we can do virtually. What's missing, though, which is important to, um, I think, founders and also to VCs is not being able to meet an entrepreneur in person and being able to have a meal with them and get to know them um, is, is hard. And I think that's something that we'll see the comfort zone. Different people and different firms will have different comfort zones on being able to invest. For me, personally, a big um, criteria is just... Um, the feeling I have when I meet yeah. with an entrepreneur. And I think the same goes with many of my entrepreneurs that, that we have a chance to work with. And you know, a lot of those interactions are so formative that um, I think people understand if you say we love the business, but it's hard for us to transact uh, if we've never met in person. So um, so yeah.
0: It's a really sort of strange adjustment there. I just got off a call with Samil Shah and we were talking about that very thing. Oh, yeah. You know at at the very early stages like pre-seed seed seed plus uh so much of the decision is on that feeling with the team and do they have the right ingredients and the fundamentals because there's just not a ton there when it comes to you know product and and um and, and traction um so yeah i i mean i'm curious how diligence processes are going to adapt and um at the later stages i mean you're putting a lot of capital on the line i I would imagine that uh, you know, meeting the founders in person and doing diligence in person on site, you know, with teams and seeing how teams interact is a huge part of the equation.
1: Well, I think one, so a couple of things, one big difference, uh, Samil has got this, his perspectives are spot on. I love following him on Twitter. He's a good friend. Uh, one, one thing that is different than 08 is I think companies have a lot more data available today than they did even 12 years ago in growth. And if I think about the real-time measurement tools that people can use to extract out, you know, how they're doing, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, in those days, you sort of had to wait weeks and weeks and weeks before you got even a quarterly assessment of how the last quarter went. Now you have, you know, uh, through Salesforce alone, but all the tools built around, you know, the Force.com ecosystem, real-time data on how a quarter ends. You know, where you don't even have to wait for the next board cycle to do it. So. And I, even in our firm, the average length of time we get to know an entrepreneur before we ever invest is two years. So the reality is, for a lot of the companies um, that we invest in, mm-hmm. we've really already gleaned a lot of the insights um, and been tracking them for years before we end up investing. Even, um, and even more than that, I think a lot of what venture and growth have moved to is, on both sides, sort of try before you buy, where a lot of founders want to say, hey, I, the pitch is great, but let me see it in action. And I think we, as a firm, you know, have really adapted to that in the last five years. And the same thing goes with entrepreneurs. If you're going to be writing a big check, you know, at a healthy valuation, you really want to get to know people and understand their motivations and see how they perform versus their own internal goals and plans. And so that part of it, I think, um, is actually positive. I think the venture ecosystem is calibrated for that. Um, What's interesting that the the thing that's been keeping me up is I think what I remember the most from the last downturn is. when you become, uh, when, if we see this progress the way I think it will, we will likely, um, you'll have to be contrarian almost by definition when you make a new investment, because the headlines will move very negative. And, you know, we're already starting to see that happen. And now, you know, as a case study of this, I remember when we made our investment in in Twitter, um, we led, we co-led the series B with benchmark capital in um, February of 2009. And I remember, you know, Lehman had just gone down, the financial markets were hemorrhaging, uh, President Obama had just been inaugurated, and the entire focus was on building TARP. And in the midst of this, we you know, visited Twitter and, in the course of this, um, you know, invested a $200 million post-money valuation for a business that had 10 million unique users, um, no revenue, and that had four outages basically in the last you know, 15 months. And the number of people in the media and in the venture business said, are you guys crazy? How is this thing ever <laughs> going to make money? 200 posts in the middle of this? Do you know what's happening in the economy? And a very important lesson I learned was uh, you need to have conviction. You need to have a thesis. And they may be right and you may be wrong. And, but the amazing thing about our business is asymmetric risk return, where you know, if they're right and you're wrong, you can lose your principle. That is a real risk in any market, but especially in a downturn. But if you're right and they're wrong, and you were able to find a company that really withstands the test of time as Twitter did, then you have the chance to make um, you know, your entire fund up. That investment alone returned our $600 million uh, IGP 12 fund. And so it was one of our all time great investments. And so I think um, that will be an adjustment for a market that has been driven off sort of consensus momentum investing people will have to be able to withstand a lot of criticism, sometimes within their own partnerships, um, sometimes, I think, um, externally, where you're going to have to look dumb before you look smart. Yeah. And I think um, having had a group of people where we're unafraid of that phenomenon, I think we're all excited to know that there's going to be some amazing companies built in this downturn, and we want to be a part of them. And um, we welcome you know, the criticism. And and you know, my joke internally is like, I always keep tab of how many press releases come into how dumb IVP was to make this investment. Cause typically <laughs> that's correlated. That's inversely correlated with the upside of it works. Yeah. So um, that's, that's just one of the things that we learned from last time.
0: That's awesome that you were, you were the lead investor of series B for Twitter. I feel like out of all the debates I've had with smart people over the years, Twitter and Facebook, I've spent the most time talking about why those are great businesses. And I think, you know, the facts have proven out at this point, but so many skeptics on these, these contrarian models in the early days.
1: Yeah. And I'll tell you, you know, we, we saw it even um, with Snapchat, we were series B investors in Snap. And um, I have the world of respect for Evan Spiegel, who's one of my favorite founders I've had a chance to work with. And the team at Snap, my partner Dennis Phelps led that investment. And uh, it was amazing. Similarly, at that time when we did the B, you know, it was an even higher price than. Uh, Twitter by a multiple uh, less employees, but um, the when we saw the engagement data, we saw his vision for what he wanted to build from a from a product standpoint. Um, we just um, you know had a strong conviction going in that if this thing works, it could be a really amazing product in the consumer space, and I think he's proven us right um, in so many ways, and continues to prove us right and make us makes us proud.
0: So you know, you talked about how funding in the fundraise market might might adjust. I kind of want to go a bit deeper there. Uh, Sure. So this crisis is different than previous crises, uh, clearly. But in 2008, um, you know, OA was still strong for C round funding. And then there was sort of a steep drop off in 2009. It stayed pretty low in 2010 and then returned to, you know, fairly strong levels in in 2011. Um, What are your thoughts on timing, severity and duration of the impact on later stage venture funding?
1: Sure. So, I mean, my first comment is, it's too early to know. I think uh, we're in kind of week four. I think I speak for probably everybody when it's, this time, it's not purely professional. It's so personal for everybody in this country. And, you know, Nick, you and I are the lucky ones. Like, we have the ability to be able to have a job and do it remotely. For so many of our healthline workers, service level workers, uh, uh, parts of the country where they're disproportionately lower middle class, lower class. I mean, it is Frightening if you see the stories of what this has done to their lives, yeah. and that is the thing that I'm just um, my heart goes out to those that are going to continue being affected by this. And it's not it's not going to stop even when we quote unquote resume life. This, the impacts of this will be felt for years to come. Um, we're you know we never believe we're in the business of predicting cycles. Um, so, but if we use the kind of historical frameworks of 2002, the dot com bust in 2008, I think this is likely to take uh, quite a while. So. First of all, this is a global phenomenon. This, like the dot com bust, to me, um, having you know worked in tech at that time, was very much a correction of Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley excess and sort of IPO excess. But it wasn't as marked for other industries across America and across the world. Two thousand eight was very much a um, financial crisis in the U.S. that definitely had spillover effects in parts of Europe and Asia. But um, again. It was the it was a scary time because you know the real question was will the financial markets and institutions be solvent and you know you look backwards and see how you, how much credit that administration must be given for how quickly they moved um, and I give and I do give credit to this administration too for moving fast in many categories uh, in terms of how they've reacted to COVID nineteen of course uh, there are some categories that they have not moved as fast on which uh, upsets me um, I do think that. The severity and duration of this one, to me, feels like it's going to be at least as long, if not longer, than what we saw in 2008 because it's health-oriented and it's global and it's affecting all socioeconomic classes and all business categories. Um, I do think that uh, when it comes to your question on funding, um, we're just in the early stages. So What we're seeing so far is um, many companies that had talked verbally or had term sheets in right before COVID hit. The good firms are honoring those, and they are finishing those transactions. They're having um, conversations with entrepreneurs uh, about what expectations should be. If entrepreneurs um, fundraise on a plan that was built in January of 2020, even though that was only a quarter ago, um, it's not prudent to stick to that as the operating plan. I think um, savvy entrepreneurs and and experienced venture capitalists are coming together to say, hey… This may be a year in which we're going to need to preserve cash even after this round and have a lower growth target and have more operating leverage in the business. And don't penalize us. We're having that conversation now. I do think that a lot of um, companies that are going out right now to raise around, uh, it is going to be tough. It's going to be a hard time to find investors that believe because most VCs are doing um, the right thing by focusing on their existing companies and reserving and allocating capital to make sure they defensively support those that need it in the short period of time and offensively also take advantage of this to own more of companies where they see coming out stronger on the other side. We just went through an analysis internally uh, and did a lot of work on this in the last three weeks because it coincided with our 40th annual meeting. And Actually, um, we 91% of our portfolio um, is either generating free cash flow, profitable or break even, or has at least a year of runway uh, in front of it. For the 9% that now doesn't have a year of runway, we're doing all the things you'd expect from um, studying the stimulus to see who can be um, who can apply and actually um, get some of it uh, for their use cases, talking to the venture lenders to see if we can extend terms on, on credit, um, seeing if we can make uh, freezes in hiring, in some cases cuts, to extend our runway. Uh, but that's been the real focus as far as new deals go. We're in market and we're meeting lots of companies, but Um, our priority has to be our people and our portfolio. uh, And it can't be just um, uh, sacrificing on those two buckets to be able to prioritize the new opportunities.
0: Right. Right. Um, You know, how do you think the exit market for, for companies adjusts Um, here again? This is so early, right? We're only three to four weeks in. And so you're not predicting the future here, but you do have experience with a previous crisis you work with a lot of folks that have seen multiple um this is going to be a crisis of a different nature but uh do you think a lot of those exit paths uh evaporate do you think the the market for strategic acquisitions and or IPOs um is significantly depressed with with some other things
1: yeah so it's a it's a great question and again it's too early to know but my own sense and i think most would agree is the IPO window is going to be shut. So those that filed in Q4 of last year, Q1, with the hope of going out in Q2, Q3, it's just not going to happen. Like we're just not going to see the receptivity by institutional public shareholders to buy in at IPOs. When you know the key thing, we're, so one of the unique aspects of IVP is we're a true crossover fund from IVP1 onwards, where we can allocate a portion of our our existing venture fund to public investing. We typically use it. Selectively to buy in the IPOs of our existing companies or support them um, in the aftermarkets. We, uh, but we really have it for periods like this, where in whether it was 1987 or uh, 1991 or 2002 or 2008, we have an opportunity to um, make select long-only public investing in tech companies where we have a three to five-year hold period. We never short stocks, and um, actually have the opportunity. We've done really well in the last few crises doing that. In the last crises we bought success factors data domain omniture we knew the teams we had done diligence as private companies and just felt like those are better risk returns as the private markets were still correcting um i do think the ipo window is suspended i don't think it's shut i think it um, absolutely has the opportunity to open back up in q4 because my our perspective on the pandemic is um there are certain sectors that are getting hit really hard whether it's travel or hospitality or retail um but fundamentally uh you know we I'm very optimistic that we will get through this as a country and as an industry, and people will go back to taking vacations, buying uh, things, um, you know, having shared experiences with loved ones at restaurants. And so in that case, I think things get delayed. I don't think it shuts for any fundamental reason. I do think the M and a window is actually very active. We saw a number of deals announced last week uh, in the security space, in the enterprise infrastructure space. We have a few companies that have actually had conversations accelerate. Most tech strategics are pretty cash rich um, and view this as an opportunity for them to get better value and do a few accretive investments um, than they may have at the peak of where valuations were high in startup land in the last 12 to 18 months. Uh, so I think the MA window will be quite active in the next two quarters as the IPO window shut. And I think in terms of um, private equity, It'll be interesting to see what happens there. A Lumber of private equity, global private equity firms are going to be fundraising. Credit markets are changing dynamically. So um, historically, especially in software, we've seen firms like Vista and Toma Bravo be very active. I think they will be active in a certain um, size and scale, but in terms of large new um, control investments, I'll be interested to see. I think they may suspend also for the next few quarters.
0: Do you think startup founders should spend more time exploring potential M&A at this point? to kind of hedge situation. I, I I know there's, there's many founders out there. I don't want to speak for specific ones in my portfolio, but there's some that were on that IPO path or, or bust, you know, multi-billion dollar company and amidst the situation and cash being constrained and uh, venture firms taking longer, uh, some sources going away. Um, Do you think that founders should be spending more time engaging with strategics um, to have optionality.
1: So, you know, as a former once upon a time for a short part of my career investment banker, I always believe in the phrase that I think Frank had coined, which was companies are, are bought, not sold. And so I, I actually think that, um, you know, founders are under a tremendous amount of stress, both personally and professionally. And I think we, as investors need to be careful, Nick, about, um, the guidance we give them to tell a founder right now, Hey, you know the most important thing for you to do is sort of create an M and A process and go out and talk to these people. That is, um, that should not be a top priority for any founder of any scale. I think most of the big strategic requires of corp dev teams, who are very savvy and understand this is an opportunity, and many are reaching out proactively to companies. Um, I think there's a reason why good advisory firms exist. It's to help them if they're serious about wanting to figure out what their options are. Engage the right advisory firms um, to you know, make sure that you know how to even think through the conversations if you're a founder and haven't been through before. Um, I think the first order of business is actually having control of your own asset and giving yourself runway and liquidity. So most of the founders that we work with at the the late stage, near IPO stage, are thinking through the next 30 to 90 days. What are the areas in which they can see savings? Where's their potential upside? You know, for all the... um, there are companies, of course, in our portfolio that are affected by this disproportionately because of the nature of what they do. But there's other companies that are really benefiting uh, in many ways that were unexpected. We're investors in companies like Masterclass, Discord, which are seeing a huge rise above plan in terms of engagement on gaming and on content consumption. We're in Coinbase, which is seeing trading volumes um, increase dramatically. Um, you know, we're public investors. we were private investors in Slack, which is seeing huge growth and Teams and subscriptions in the last year. Stuart's talked about this uh, on Twitter. Um, so, you know, it's affecting companies differently. I would say the broad advice I'd give if you're thinking about MA is instead of sort of saying, no way, Jose, if you believe that um, it could be an, an event that has value for all shareholders, not just the founders, it's a good time to engage your board on this, engage your, your management team, and engage the right advisory firms. But I would not recommend. Trying to go out and sort of running your own rogue process.
0: So, Mesh, what do you think happens in the secondaries market?
1: I think that's a good question. I think, um, and again, if you stratify companies, so and uh, when it comes to buying secondary shares, there's different constituents. We do a lot of it at IVP. Um, I do think that seed and you know many first-time funds and seed investors are going to probably see in the next few quarters the need for liquidity. Um, you know, we talk a lot to our limited partners, and the reality is for um, IVPs always had this crossover um, focus. And you know, we've uh, in the last decade distributed you know on the order of um, four billion dollars. So we've always had liquidity as a central tenant of the partnership and our relationship with LPs. For a lot of other um, smaller funds, they haven't distributed anything to their limited partners, and as they're young and they've kind of had um, this being their investment cycle, we typically see for any fund. Year one through four is sort of the primary investment cycle, Uh, year four through seven is sort of the harvesting cycle, Uh, and year seven through 10 is the liquidity cycle. Some of these funds are sort of in year three, year five, year six, so they haven't seen any liquidity. And so we view this secondary markets will get quite active where larger funds like IVP and others will have the opportunity to, in our existing companies, but also new companies, um, actually provide that liquidity to these early angel investors. I think, um, many, we're seeing this in real time. Many teams are really making the hard decisions to do pay cuts for executives. Um, we talked about this today as a partnership, but one of our companies just decided that the full executive team will take a 40% cash pay cut. Um, different people have different, um, levels of kind of personal liquidity available to them. Some can manage that others, you know, have, um, yet to buy a home, you know, in New York or the Bay Area and have kids that, um, they want to be able to provide for. So, we think in those cases, inside investors will go in and buy their shares and provide them partial liquidity uh, to help them out in these crises. And we're actually having an active discussion one company I'm involved in right now on that. Um, I do think that um, you know many of the companies that raised enough money you know, before COVID-19 hit will be able to weather this. And if you are a firm that wants to get in, I think one entry uh, strategy will be going in through liquidity. The question will be pricing. I think right now you're seeing most uh, secondary deals still happen at like a five to ten percent discount for the hot deals from the last preferred. That delta last time this happened in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, will get larger uh, as more and more quarters go by. Um, and a few companies will be able to, you know, probably see smaller discounts or maybe even price parity, just given they're growing so fast and maybe they're in industries that are counter cyclical. But you know, many of the companies will have to see secondary deals happen at uh, much more significant discounts to their last preferred.
0: What what's your take on some of these late stage companies that are in sectors markets that are hardest hit right by the crisis. So we've got the service industry, travel, um service and, and hospitality. Uh you've got mobility, you know, companies like Bird, companies like Airbnb. I think Airbnb was planning on going public in 2020 which may not happen now. I what happens to these well capitalized companies that are just getting crushed by the nature of this crisis?
1: It's a good question and again we're just I think they're so um they're reacting. I give Brian Chesky a lot of credit. We're not investors in Airbnb. Uh we wish we were. He's really an amazing resilient entrepreneur in light of, you know, for no fault of his own, you know, the changes that's happened to their kind of status quo the amount of support Airbnb is providing for health workers around the world and their community of homeowners is just remarkable. And I think it just shows culture matters. Um, if you have that kind of a culture and you have that type of leadership, you will come out stronger. And I'm a firm believer in the long-term prospects of Airbnb. I do think it'll likely delay their plans to go public, delay their plans for new product introductions. Um, things that are discretionary will have to get pushed out. But, um, I still fundamentally believe in the value proposition, right? People will travel again. People will go around the world. People want those shared experiences, people, community, uh, you know, one contrarian thesis in Airbnb is community will matter even more in many ways. Um, I think if there's one thing we've all learned already collectively in four weeks, it's the importance of, of humanity. I don't know about you, Nick, but I've reconnected on zoom happy hours and zoom family calls with (laughs) people who I had lost touch with, you know, frankly, in the busyness of the last 10 years, um, and it just it makes us all realize how much more we have in common than we are than we have that are differences. And I think a lot of us will, when we resume, will not probably go back to things exactly the way they were. Right. I think the prioritization of friendships and family will be higher on the Maslow hierarchy of needs, I'd say, than sort of may it may have been before. Um, and I think because of that, companies that harness community and harness these shared social experiences will do well. Um, I will say, you know, there's other markets like We Are Investors in Line, uh, which like Bird is, two, they're two of the best companies in the scooter space. Both those businesses, um, are doing very well in terms of just, they got the unit economics down. They had fo- both had figured out, um, about a year ago that the path to profitability and operating leverage is what public investors want after watching Uber and Lyft go public, um, and had made so many of the necessary changes in their business models. I'm actually very confident about both of them because if you think about micro mobility for a second, um, You know, they did the right thing, both companies, by taking scooters off the streets uh, where there were quarantines and social distancing was mandated. Um, But as we, as if you look at South Korea as a data point, um, scooters are back up and running in South Korea. And actually, for many of the food delivery workers, healthline workers, um, it is a more affordable choice than having their own cars. Um, It is actually a more environmentally friendly choice. Uh, which, you know, climate change is another topic that's coming up a lot where people are more climate conscious now than they were before the crisis. And uh, people, frankly, feel a little bit better about um, about preventive abilities of catching COVID if you're on a scooter by yourself than if you're in a crowded subway, crowded bus, or even a crowded Uber pool where you have five people in a small constrained area. So there are some counter cyclical trends we're seeing in Asia where they're on the other side of this faster than we are in the United States. Um, so, but it'll be a tough period where both companies will need to, um, think about resetting expectations and the suspension of these markets, you know, will be interesting to see how they will endure that in the next few quarters.
0: Well, I have to admit to you, I've only tried one scooter ever, and it's been uh, lime. And ever since I tried it for the first time, I've been a, f- a frequent customer. It's, it's an amazing experience, not having to wait for, you know, uber to come you just hop on and you go and often you get there quicker and and much cheaper so um with with solid unit economics i mean the the scooters are certainly here to stay at this point if you're a vc you've heard of carta you've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform it feels like every new company is using carta and there's already 16,000 vc vc-backed companies on the platform They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers, constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com. Forward slash investors. In this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. So, Samesh, you've been at IVP since 05. Uh, what are your best recollect- recollections of the changes in strategy that were made during 08, 09?
1: Well, I think the, the key the key thing going into any change in the environment is you need to... St- the most important thing is you got to stay in business, okay? You have to be able to... A lot of firms that I didn't think did as well in that period, they just stopped looking at deals. They stopped meeting entrepreneurs, they stopped building relationships. I think you know, the lesson from 02 and 08 at IVP was always you stay in business, meet companies, you continue to be a value-added um, thought provider and service provider to them. And so I do think that that is um, one of the most important lessons. The second thing is... It's actually a great, t- these are always, in most cases, the best vintages. So for from an LP perspective, you can never time the venture markets. It's important to, you know, what's happening right now in the LP world is a lot of them are saying, oh my God, if you look at the headlines, like startups are, you know, under duress. And many of our LPs, um, you know, are so delighted that they continue to support us through the 08,09 9 downturn uh, and because of the performance of that fund and have that view, which is Venture is a cyclical process. You know this bull market lasted longer than we think, but this is the exact wrong time to get out of the asset class. And so, we're very empathetic that many of them um, have to, you know, think about their processes uh, as they think about new fund deployments because they're working from home. Committees are getting pushed. Um, they have other th- many most LPs, as you know, Nick have um, assets across different classes, whether it's fixed income, equities, um, debt. Uh, and of course private equity is an alternative asset class which includes buyouts early stage venture and growth and so they're going through the adjustment on their allocation processes as we speak right now so we are very we're co- collaborating and talking to them about that but um i think you over communication is sort of what i would say is one of the most important lessons which is yep. at this time gp should be over communicating most importantly with their teams i mean this is a health crisis this affects families i mean one of the things that's been the most rewarding in the last 3 weeks is you know, having these Zoom happy hours, I'm learning things about my colleagues that I never knew before at all levels, not the partnership, but just, you know, our IT team internally, our finance back office team. We have a newsletter that we put together, uh, our, my colleague Janet puts together every Friday. And today we had pictures of, of pets that we got to see their names, and it was just really fun. And that stuff matters at a time like this where so many of us are under stress. Um, I think it's just really nice to be able to laugh with your coworkers a little bit, and people are sharing funny memes and videos. Um, so over communicating with your LPs, your entrepreneurs, it's also important for CEOs to over communicate right now. Like yep. I think long board meetings are being supplemented by just quick, um, zoom calls, quick Slack calls. I've talked to, you know, every entrepreneur I work with multiple times in the last three weeks, I just, and, um, it's some of the most meaningful conversation in my 15 year career at IVP. Um, you know, I'd say the, the other thing I would probably say uh, about a lesson learned is. You have to remember that uh, venture capitalists, our job, we're minority stakeholders. Our job is to be sounding boards. I remember a quote that Mark Leslie, uh, who's been a mentor and former professor of mine at Stanford, said, which is, um, if you don't listen to your board, you may get fired. But if you listen to your board, you will get fired, as advice to CEOs, (laughs) which I thought was one of the great quotes. Uh, It is hard as a CEO right now. You're getting inundated with inputs and advice. And it's important to know your true north your compass but your intuition your voice as a ceo is what matters the most and so solicit input but you got to figure out which ones are relevant you got to figure out what people's self interests are and you got to trust most importantly your intuition and gut yep. and i think as as ceos we you know we just salute all of them for being they're so resilient and, you know in normal times at a time like this i'm just i am just so proud of the ones we work with at ivp to be able to communicate uh, with them but to be able to empathize with them and understand that none of us have the answers we're trying to figure this out together we're a team right we're not you know adversarial I think that's the the pattern that we're seeing emerge with the best conversations with investors and founders um, I think the biggest mistake that CEOs uh, make is not communicating enough uh, and and then people feel blindsided or not heard I think in some ways being an investor or board members like being a parent like with your with my kids you you want to make sure they're you, you know you're heard and you're valued and you're respected but your kids you know they're going to do what they're going to do at some point and you can't control the outcome no matter how much you want that's how our relationships are with kind of our founders
0: I love that I, I was doing some onboarding today with some new interns and uh, the point came up about you know how involved do you need to get and you know how how much should we guide the strategy and I I had to tell the group like look if we should not be the difference between success and failure with these startups that's right um we can accelerate it and we can help guide and we can help them achieve success in a less painful way but if we are the difference between success and failure then it's not an investment we should make um and that's our personal philosophy at newstack and it doesn't have to be everyone's but we don't we do not want to be um subsidizing the management team
1: well the two the two pieces of advice that i've been talking about nick with uh, our companies, I should say, two, three. The first is the lesson from Twitter, Zynga, Yaks, the App Dynamics, the companies we funded in the last downturn. Is you never stop investing in innovation. And so I think there might be, um, if you read a lot of the consensus views right now, it's oh, you got to cut, you know, across the board and cut deep. The reality is the reason startups exist is to innovate. It's to build products. It's to develop IP. And so even in a market like this where we're going to ambiguity and uncertainty, you can't stop the innovation process. Um, And frankly, you can't stop it even if you want to, because startups are like organisms that can grow on their own. And so your team will rally around um, continuing to build and innovate. The second thing um, that I think is really important is um, rifts are hard. They're really hard. I mean, our founders have spent years building up these teams, uh, and countless man hours have gone in to identify great talent recruit them, reference check them, and then onboard them. And it's really hard on both sides to have to do this over Zoom. Um, and that's one of the things that's been the most crushing is how many of our CEOs who've had to go through this or the stories we hear, this is some of the toughest days of their professional careers. And some of them have worked for two to three decades. One of the things um, that I think is important is early in my career, I was an intern at Sybase, which was going through a turnaround. And you know I was too young at the time, but I was you know the recipient of a riff, right? And they cut the entire marketing department in because of a strategic direction change. And, um, as someone who had been laid off and had been affected by a riff, I just, I can't forget that conversation I had. It wasn't done very well by my manager at the time. And, um, I just think it's important if you're a seat, you're a manager and you need to do it. Talk to people who have been on the other end of that and learn from them about what went well, what didn't. People are giving you advice who've never been in a position of, Uh, letting people go or been the recipient of that news, you know, I take some of that advice with salt. It's an emotional thing for both sides. It's one of the hardest things you do. And so I think that's the other piece of advice is solicit those who've done it really well. And a related point, my third piece of advice is it's a good time to build your kitchen table cabinet, your board. Because those who've been through previous crises, those who run public companies in the public eye when you've had these downturns, they really have sort of a muscle memory, yep. Um, and, and I'd say in momentum markets, you know, a lot of people aren't sought out for that type of advice. But John Chen, who ran Sybase when I was, um, you know, a lowly intern from UC Berkeley, was one of the first you know, CEOs I got to see in action. And He's exceptional at just communication with his stakeholders and how he thinks. He, you know, turned around Sybase and sold to SAP, and now he turned around Research In Motion, the old BlackBerry, where he's CEO now. And um, I think those are the kinds of people that you should use to complement. Uh, those that have growth expertise and venture creation expertise on boards and advisory boards.
0: Love it. I mean, you've said it a couple times here, but choosing mentors, choosing board members, choosing advisors carefully is so important, right? People that yeah. have experience, but but not just experience, like the right folks at the right time. Um, it, it always kind of makes me cringe when uh, I meet a founder that's going through these, you know, iterations with 30 different mentors and getting all this different advice and they can't parse <laughs> the right advice from the wrong advice. And I just don't think anyone can be a mentor and anyone can be an advisor in this industry just because they've worked for a startup or you know they spent time as an angel investor, for instance. I totally agree. Um, Samesh, I'd like to talk a bit about uh, Lyra before we wrap up. Sure, sure. So you guys uh, led the Series C. Uh, this the startup, of course, is is focused on mental health and and mental health now more than ever is um, just super important. I, I think there's so many people struggling, uh, whether they've had direct exposure, you know, to to the virus itself. They have friends or family that have, um, and then there's just some others that are really struggling adjusting to isolation. Um, I know, you know, I'm an introvert and. Gosh, the first couple of weeks felt really refreshing. You know, not doing a whole lot um, from that standpoint. I mean, there were a lot of challenges, um, but I know there's a lot of extroverts out there that are are struggling uh, significantly right now. Um, so, back to the point on Lyra, what are your thoughts on mental health and the effects of work from home and social distancing on on folks?
1: Well, uh, thanks for bringing it up, Nick. It's such an important topic, one that's very um, important to me personally, as well as, of course, through Lyra professionally. Um, Before we even talk about Lyra, um, I think it's important for anyone who's listening, if you feel um, like this is becoming a difficult time for you, you feel unsettled, um, it is important to know that you're not alone. You can get help. Um, There are communities um, and, of course, clinicians to support you. Lyra.com actually has a lot of resources. Uh, that can be, uh, potentially helpful. Um, this is a very isolating time. We are seeing the data come in via Lyra and, um, you know, from light anxiety to more severe clinical depression to also, unfortunately, suicide rates, um, are starting to really rise to a dangerous level. They're already high in this country. Uh, they're continuing to go up higher. Yes. Um, and it's really, really worrisome. Um, i the silver lining is telemedicine uh maybe the bridge that was always missing between traditional psychiatric care clinician care uh and the vast uh the millions of Americans um who have light to severe mental health disorders um, it is uh something that um I've seen you know across my own family and my wife's family I've seen it with friends um I've lost friends from it over the years, and it's something that I just cared a lot about passionately the um Crisis is definitely exposing the fact that we need to have a stronger conversation and, um, and more awareness about mental health. I'm really proud of um, kind of where the United States has gone in the last decade versus where it was two, three decades ago. The stigma is no longer as marked as it was, but um, different cultures and different ages react differently. And so it's, I think, important for um, people this to be part of the national consciousness um, the story on Lyra was actually interesting. I, you know, We were talking earlier about the length of time we typically meet people is two years. I actually met David Ebersman, the CEO, a decade before we ever got a chance to work together. He was the CFO of Facebook. Um, and we had a chance to look at a few of the Facebook rounds that he was organizing on behalf of uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. He was, hands down, one of the most impressive executives and, of course, one of the most impressive public company CFOs uh, we've ever seen from both being CFO of Genentech and Facebook. Um, in some ways, the perfect background for a, a company that's uh, really working on building um, what we call a blended care product, which has both physical providers, um, you know, EBT, CBT trained clinicians, psychi- um, psychiatrists um, who can come and help um, employees of large companies or customers, but also um, coaches who can work uh, virtually on apps to sort of be there to care for uh, patients when they can't see them in person, like right now. Um, so we've actually seen the data uh, show that this is top of mind for so many employees of companies that are customers of LyRA. Um, I think what's really um, impactful is this is such a mission driven company, uh, but um, as we announced as part of the financing, it's also a really good business. You know we have hundred million of revenue kind of in sight. Um, we have the opportunity to transform you know some incredible businesses across different verticals uh, where it's not just about the executive team getting help. It is down to the service-level workers um, being able to access help. Um, and you know, the vision for the company is if we, most of us work in organizations where we have health plans that uh, provide us with some flavors of vision care, um, of course, health care, and dental care, why not mental health as a part of that um, kind of quadrant? Right. Um, I, don't, I think it's important, just as important for me and my family to be able to get help um, to, to actually, um, to help us with our minds and our mental fortitude, as much as with our vision, our teeth, our, our physical health. And so we all know now how much these things are interlinked. And so you can't be the best version of yourself with your family or with your coworkers or with your classmates, if you don't have the tools to cope with mental health and anxiety. Right. And so, um, I'm really proud of the work David Ebersman and the team at Lyra has done, um, uh, as they themselves have had to transition to a work from home. Organization, um, they've been able to still provide amazing service uh, to all their customers and so many of their of the employees that they touch indirectly.
0: Yep. What you know more generically, what sort of advice or suggestions do you have for leadership teams? You know that are going through tricky times, trying to keep morale high, um, maybe having to go through furloughs, layoffs, um, you know, other really hard decisions.
1: Um, the first is that. Uh, you know, it's um, it's. Uh, I was watching, you know, uh, Good Hunting a couple of months ago, and there's that line that Robin Williams says to Matt Damon, which is, "It's not your fault, right? Yeah, it's not your fault." It, like, I think as someone, you know, we touched on this earlier. If you've been the, if you've been part of a furlough or a layoff or a rift before, which I have, the mind can't help but think, especially if you're younger and less experienced, that it is my fault. It's my fault. I could have done something differently, and you, you need to first personify the fact that many of your employees, many of your stakeholders feel this way. And you need to... The key role of a leader, I think, is to allay anxiety, to, to lessen anxiety, not heighten it. And so being conscious and self-aware of that is the first tip, which is just realize it is not your fault you're in this situation. Nobody predicted a global pandemic. I don't care what anybody says. Um, we're very lucky that there are pundits and experts who at least caught it early, but none of us could have seen this coming or the impact it would have had. Um, And it's really unfortunate. And I think we'll be much more prepared. God, I hope we never have one of these again. But if we do, I know everybody will be more well prepared the next time. Um, I think, you know, keeping morale really high, celebrate the wins. You know, just little things like, you know, if you're a company that typically sells a million dollar deal at the end of a quarter, and you just got a 10k deal, guess what, like a wins a win. So Celebrate it, drink to it, have a happy hour. You know, it's 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 really important to make people feel like they're part of something. Um, you got to redo the goals. Like you know, some people just forget, but people are still sitting there looking at their performance reviews from last year and thinking about the goals they have for 2020 and saying, "I'm not going to hit this." Like it's just an expectation. You need to allay, You need to recreate those goals and understand that, hey, we don't know what our own business is going to look like. You know, two quarters from now, much less at the end of December. Know that we're going to work with you and work alongside you to create the right kinds of goals. And we're not going to just, you know, hold you to a standard that doesn't make sense anymore. Um, but I think the most important thing is make sure that people can take care of their families. Cause if they take care of their families, they take care of themselves, then they can help be productive, um, colleagues and coworkers. If that part of it is not there, um, and people are suffering, you know, they just can't come to work with their 100% best self. And so I think that's the most important thing is just, um, show the human side, you know, celebrate the humanity that's there in all of us. And, um, I think we're going to get through this as an industry. I think we'll get through this as a country. Um, it's been a really, I just, you know, when you and I last chatted five weeks ago, neither of us had any idea that this was going to happen, but boy, <laughs> no. I feel like I've had a decade's worth of learning personally and professionally in the last four weeks.
0: Seriously. Just wait for the next couple quarters.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Well, um, we should wrap up here, Samesh. Do you have any final advice for um, for any of the listeners, whether they be investors or founders?
1: Yeah, I think um, the key thing is just uh, take breaks. Like, I think whether you're watching a lot of CNN or reading a lot of VC Twitter or you know doing a ton of Zoom calls, it's important to clear the mind. Right? Be safe out there. Don't do things that um, aren't uh, recommended by the CDC or local or federal authorities. But um, I think it's a fun time to actually pick up hobbies and passions that a lot of us suspended because of just big life changes or big professional requirements. Um, I have a feeling, I can say as a father of two young kids, like some of the most special conversations I've had have occurred in the last three weeks. Uh, of course, it's coupled with some frustrating conversations given we're all getting sick see each other in the same small confined room. So we all need breaks from each other. But uh, I do think that it's, it's going to be a time that I think we'll all look back for decades to come and remember. And there's going to be a lot of sad memories associated with this period, but um, there will be happy ones too. And I think a lot of us will um, have a sense of belonging and community and um, love uh, that you know was not quite there when we were all running at 100 miles an hour in our normal crazy lives. And so I'm trying to savor this. I think you know that would be my advice: is savor the good as much as you can, and realize that um, there are people out there that care about you and want to help you. And um, you know that's kind of it. And you know we'll kind of see what this all looks like at the other side, hopefully over a, uh, a real happy hour, but if not, at least a Zoom virtual happy hour for <laughs> yeah, a couple right, of years.
0: Right. Any uh, recommended resources for the audience?
1: Sure. The NBCA is doing a good job, I think, of putting together stuff on the venture side um, that talks about the stimulus bill and what could be applicable or not. Um, I would say, you know, there's on the mental health side, I talked about Lyra. I'd like to plug Thrive Global as well, which is in partnership with CAA Foundation and the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, doing a lot of work around mindfulness. Um, uh, Thrive was founded by Ariana Huffington and has been focused on how do we think about mindfulness and productivity for knowledge workers? And that's another acute need right now. Um, and I think there's just a lot of great... I really liked... Um, David Yulevich wrote a post I retweeted on just um, how to do a riff if you're a founder. And I just thought it was really authentic, um, but empathetic and had a lot of good practical advice. Um, so there's really good content. If people want to follow me on Twitter... I try my best to retweet things that I think are good that I'm reading um, and or just drop me a, an email. I'd love to hear from anyone. S-D-A-S-H-S-Dash at IVP.com.
0: Well, Samesh, this was a real pleasure. I mean, it, it, it was great chatting with you a few weeks ago. I, w- I wish that we didn't have to do it under under these circumstances because there were so many other things that I, w- I would have loved to cover with you. But I'm so glad that you know you made time to help the audience here and help me think through this crisis and think how it's going to affect you know later stage capital.
1: I appreciate it, Nick. I'm glad to hear you and the team are healthy and the family's good. And so just, um, you know, we'll get through this and I look forward to, to keeping
0: in touch. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us.